early hopefully it won't create too many people straggling in late today is tuesday july the 11th 2023 and this is episode 3337 of the survival podcast it's episode number 43 bitcoin breakout and so we are going to talk about bitcoin today and we're going to talk about artificial intelligence if you paid attention to the title you know we're talking about the merging of bitcoin and ai and it's not intended to be a clickbait title, but it may come across that way. It's the best way I can describe it. But I'm not actually talking about like AI and Bitcoin becoming one thing together. I'm talking about the merging of the two ecosystems over top of each other in a really cool way. And as AI continues to emerge and show us what it's going to become, we start to realize that there are some problems that come with AI and it's not the Terminator or, you know, John Connor's going to die or something like that or the Matrix. It's that AI empowers people to do a hell of a lot with a little bit and basically spawn off infinite clones of humans or bots. And this is a problem. This is a, this is a bigger problem I think most people are aware of outside of the developer space. And it all hinges on something called an API, which we'll, I'll explain what that is to you today and why it matters. But the reality is, once I have access to AI, and now I can start to spawn off agents, right? Like Agent Smith, what? right now, right? Then I can literally create this army to do my bidding, including things like a dedicated denial of service attack, right? I, I can make, and the, we are getting to a point where the technology on the other end of this can't discern between a human and a bot. The latest iterations of some of the AI bots can solve 100% of captions. So we need some kind of gatekeeping. And so this all came from an episode I listened to of Guy Swan's newest podcast called AI Unchained, which I, he kind of did with AI Unchained, what I did with Bitcoin Breakout, except he totally broke it out. He wanted to talk about AI, and he's known for Bitcoin, so he put the AI somewhere else. And uh, But there's this overlap that cannot be gotten away from. So his latest episode, uh, he did it with a gentleman named Cody Lowe, and we're going to talk about parts of it today along with some other things. And basically, the fiat monetary system can't fix this problem that I'll explain more to you about before we get into how it, it's, it's solved using Bitcoin and Lightning. But w when I say it can't, I mean it is impossible. Not, we just haven't figured out how to do it yet. In a credit-based monetary system, you can't fix this problem. It's undoable. It's undoable. And it also, anything that you would kind of cobble together as a solution locks out a whole bunch of people in the world who are what we would call unbanked or live in jurisdictions where they wouldn't have access to this. And we're getting to a point now where people are honestly able to do development work on a cell phone. But again, this creates problems. This creates problems. If anybody anywhere can do development work and anybody anywhere can get access to things like APIs and then anybody anywhere can access uh, AI and spawn off agents, we have a recipe for disaster if we don't create a good gateway. 
and what I'll what I'll end with, and then we'll go to our intro segment uh, to get your mind in the right direction. Is I came away from this that I totally lifted this out of Guy's interview, but none of them said it quite this way. And that is an absolute finite resource is necessary to control an unlimited one. If I'm going to have something that's completely unlimited over here and I want to gild it like we do in permaculture so it doesn't take over everything and ruin everything, then I need a finite resource, an absolute finite resource as a limiting gild against this expansion of this infinite thing. And for all intents and purposes, when you can start generating a thousand bots a minute, which you can easily do, and turn them loose in an ecosystem like this, it is an unlimited thing. It's an infinite thing. Sure, there's a number at the top, but it, it, it runs right past the number where it matters. Anyway, before we get into this, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Start9 Embassy Servers. Hey, if you're a Bitcoiner and you want to run your old node and you're not doing that already, what if you could get one box? It would let you run your own node. It would let, let you run your own Lightning node. It would give you access to all your files anywhere in the world. It would give you end-to-end military-grade encryption that only people get to use it as the ones you let in. And it could do a whole bunch of other things. And what if it was so great of a device? It was such a cool thing that you could literally pull out of the box, plug it in, follow a few instructions, and from that point on, all the things you wanted to do with it were as simple as installing an app on a smartphone. That's what Start9 does. It's time to take back your digital sovereignty completely. Bitcoin is one piece of our sovereignty as beings, both digital and real world, honestly. But there's a lot more that goes into a sovereign life in the digital space. When someone else controls your access to your files, you don't have your files. Think of it like Bitcoin. I have Bitcoin on exchange. We'll talk about that a bit today. I don't actually have Bitcoin. I have a promise of Bitcoin. If Google has my files on Google Drive, I don't actually have my files. Google does, and I get to access them with permission. We call this the cloud. There is no cloud. The cloud is a big marketing bullshit term. It's a total bullshit term. There's no cloud. There's somebody else's computer and an internet connection that you access by permission. Take it all back. Take your digital sovereignty back with Start9 Embassy Servers. And remember, if you're an MSB member, you can get uh, 9% off all Start9 Embassy products uh, through my member support uh, program. So if you're a member, make sure you're using that discount. Next up, I want to throw one more shout out on this. Sean Mills, who's been a member of our expert council for a very long time and has ha- helped countless members of this audience, both on air and off air. He's been a great instructor for me at my workshop. Same thing for Nicole Sauce at hers. Um, he's got so many questions about moving water. And the guy's a solar engineer. He said, why don't we put those two things together? And he's come up with a great Kickstarter that will teach you how to move water across your property using solar power in a ton of different ways. He needed about 3500 bucks to fund this project. And, you know, whenever you're backing a Kickstarter, you're always like, well, if it doesn't fund, I get my money back. But in fact, they don't even take your money until it, it's fully funded. Uh, but, you know, am I going to back something? Because maybe it won't work. Maybe they won't get the money. You know, nobody wants to go first. He's at 9900 bucks. There's three days left to get in on this Kickstarter. And like I said before, when I talked about this, as great and as valuable as that information is, I also look at it as this audience investing in a man that's invested in us. Sean has just so many times gotten on the air and given very complex, high-end engineering answers, broken them down to where they're easily understood and helped people. So, you know, maybe it's time to invest back in the expert counsel who's invested so much time 
in us. With that, let's dig on into this today. All right. So let's start off with before we can define the problem and talk about how Bitcoin and Lightning can be a solution to the problem. We have to understand how the problem becomes a problem in the first place. So I'm not a super high technical person. I think that's good here, though, because I'll take some technical things and break them down in redneck so they're easy to understand. Uh, but something I do understand very well, because I've been in the Internet marketing game since 1996. Right. So very early on in the world of the Internet, with a lot of marketing functions and many other functions, you had to get involved with APIs. And sometimes that's a very complex thing. Sometimes it's a very simple thing. There are WordPress plugins, for instance, that they work with another service. You say you want an API key and they give you one. And this is to basically create a gateway flow control. So they just can't be overwhelmed, which is a problem we'll get to. And you plug that API key into your uh, WordPress uh, plugin and it just works. And it might allow you to do something like when I hit publish, instead of me going to Facebook and sharing my content, it automatically does it for me. And we call that an API, an active programming interface. And I almost don't want to say it because it makes me sound smarter than I am about it. Because what I just told you is mostly what I know about it and mostly how I've used it is obtaining one either for free or for a small cost, dropping it into a plugin that automates a function. Okay, but that's what an API is. And a good way to think about it, you know, making it as simple as I can with an analogy. You go to a restaurant, you sit down at a table, you want food. But you don't go into the kitchen, talk to the chef, tell them what you want and bring your food back to your table. Right. You sit at your table. This is your place. The cooks are in the kitchen. That's their place to get the order to the, the cooks and the food to your table. You have a, a, a waiter. Yeah, it's application. Tom, you're right. Not active. Right? I told you I'm not that smart. Application programming interface. Anyway, uh, it's the misspeak there. But anyway, you, you have the waiter. Go bring you your food and then take your money and then you leave and you got served by the waiter. But the service really came from the cooks. The waiter is the API. It's the interface. Right. And so when you want to do something over here with your site or your service and it relies on another provider. An API is the link between the two of them. OK. Now, the issue arrives with the fact that this is not free, even if you don't pay for it. Like the person doing this thing, making the service available, wants to make money. And they either are going to charge you for a key, okay, or they're going to give you the key for free, but they feel that the type of things that are being done with their APIs make their platform more valuable in other ways, and they have a revenue model on the other side. And this is all great. And it can be abused up to a certain level. But as you get automation involved, uh, it, uh, you know, being able to spawn off additional users that request an API key and have another API key. And now we can have one person that effectively has this army of bots utilizing these things. And with a lot of the stuff that's going on right now, the problem there becomes effectively a, de a denial of service. Like there's so much being pulled so fast. This is part of what's going on with Twitter right now, why they've done uh, limits to how much you can look at, right? Because they're getting scraped so much by all this stuff. And so this has always been a problem, but it's been a problem that mostly 
has been able to be dealt with until now. Now you introduce artificial intelligence. You you introduce that to people who really know how to use it. And now they can spawn all the automation on their end that starts hammering these AI interfaces. Now here's where it gets really problematic. Okay, that's all a service level thing mostly. But when you're using AI to generate agents that use it, uh, a, a, an API to ping other AI systems, you're generating a real cost, an energy cost. So when you go to chat GPT and you say, tell me this thing, tell me you know, what it was like for my uncle in 1925 and speak to me in, I don't know, uh, broken English like an immigrant from Czechoslovakia. And it does that and you're entertained. There's a lot of computing power that goes into doing that. There's GPUs spinning really, really fast to make that happen. And if it's just you, you know, they're, they're doing a freemium. They bring you in for, let's look at ChatGPT's model. They bring you in, you get the, the lower version for free. They limit your use. One use is really high. You can't log in. You pay for the upgrade. You get a faster response and they get paid and, and everybody's happy, right? Until somebody wants to use an API to get into that system and then says to their own API or their own uh, artificial intelligence, make minions for me. And they just start hammering it from everywhere. This is a problem because there's a tremendous amount, just like Bitcoin uses energy to mine, there's a tremendous amount of energy going on on the other end of this equation. So the solution is you charge. And if you charge, well, then you limit that ability, right? And that's why, again, ChatGPT4, just as a single user, has a fee. I think it's 20 bucks a month you pay to be able to use it. When you start getting the world of automation, it's just far more complicated. And the problem with saying, well, we'll just charge and we'll say you get up to X. And if you want to go to Y, you have to pay more. It sort of kind of works, but it doesn't because the expense can become extremely high. And then trust me, as someone who sells digital product online, when your customer lies like a little bitch and goes to their bank, their credit card provider and says, this is a fraudulent charge. Ninety nine percent of the time you as the person selling the service because you can't provide a, a FedEx link. No matter what you provide, you provide screenshots of the son of a bitch logging into his private website. They still just take the money back from you. They don't just take the money back from you. Let's say that person paid you 20 bucks a month for access to a thing. When they do that chargeback, they charge you like a $35 charge. So you end up $20 out plus $35 out. You end up back to zero and they've used the resources and you're screwed. This doesn't work. What is necessary to make this work is in real time, on demand, billing system with instant final settlement. That is the only thing that will truly button this down and fix this issue. So that if I have a per uh, per API call, so when you when you do something and it sends that stuff out, it sends the waiter to the kitchen, that's an API call. I'm asking you to do a thing for me. Bring me my biscuits. Every time you do that, there's a charge. Now, if you try to do that with a credit card, it's cost prohibitive. It costs more to make the charge for half a penny than the half a penny. And a half a penny is a serious limiter when somebody starts trying to do this, you know, 
in, in like a million calls a day. Because like when I listened to the show with Guy, the, the, the dude that was on with him, again, his name was, I like to give people credit, Cody Lowe. He said, you know, I could go to bed at night with one of the things I've developed and wake up to a $20,000 bill if I don't have flow control on this of some kind. And if I am selling and I end up with a chargeback, I've got a credit risk, it becomes undoable. But if every single spam, if I'm getting paid to be spammed, you can spam me all you want. It's a revenue model. If it's costing me a quarter of a cent and I'm billing you a half and you can't back charge me, you can go until you get tired, right? And uh, I might get time to ask questions, answer questions about Stripe and stuff today, but this is a pretty complex topic. But if you do have questions for me in the live feed, all caps is the way to do that, and I'll see what I can do about that. But, no, I don't have any word directly from Strike, but I'll give you my thoughts on it if we end up with time. Um, and the credit-based system can't do this. Now, what's interesting is that Guy dropped this episode on the 3rd of July, I think. And I know how Guy does his production, so he didn't record it on the 3rd of July. Maybe it was a week earlier. And lo and behold, this week, and I believe that uh, Cody is connected to this because he's part of the Fediment stuff, and they were running a hackathon this month to do development on Lightning and Bitcoin and Fetty and all of it. And this came out of that hackathon. And in less than a week and a half after that episode dropped, you're looking at the solution. You're looking at an API call. Now, this is being done manually because it's like a, a test bed, but it, it already works. That you ask AI to do a thing and it generates an invoice and you pay the invoice. And that all can be automated. Again, it's being done slowly in this little video here so that you can see what's happening. But that can all be running constantly. And this is incredibly necessary, incredibly necessary, because spam will never go away. This actually changes spam into, you have to pay for my attention. You have to pay me for my attention. It's not spam anymore. And I set my own price. So I'm willing to decide how much you have to pay me for my attention. You have to pay me for my resources. And, and understand what's going on here. This is actually really cool, and it gets into the energy discussion. The big problem with these API calls out to all of these, you know, AI servers, again, is there's a huge computing network necessary to make this stuff work. There's a lot of energy being expended. So that little tiny drain of energy multiplied by a million takes all the energy away. That's the infinite resource. There is no limit on how many bots I can spawn. And there's no limit to what those bots can do by making requests of servers. But there's something many people don't know, and I did learn this from Guy's episode. I had no idea about this. We've all seen a 404 error code in HTML. That's where you put in a web address and you typed it wrong or it's not there anymore. And it comes up, this doesn't exist. That's a 404 error. Well, when they developed the original HTML code, they concluded an error called a 402 error. And that was this gateway requires a payment. Because they knew that this would happen, but they had no idea. There was no thought of a Bitcoin. E-cash was an idea. There was nothing that would work for micropayments in real time at this time. But now there is Bitcoin Lightning. 
So using that 402 gateway, basically when this thing asks for a thing, now it, instead of just saying you're screwed, here's an error that doesn't mean anything to you, pay me. And you can automate the whole thing. And what we have now is the ability for one AI agent to make payment to another AI agent. And with that, now we can start developing on this. And again, if you listen to that episode, I don't want to rehash the whole thing. I want to have a different conversation about it. But Cody is talking about, and he does way more technical than me, but how people more like me can now do development. And he was talking about doing it as a browser-based system for doing application development that someone can sit and develop these things on a phone sitting in the middle of sub-Saharan Africa. And that person will never have access in any reasonable time anyway to a credit card to buy access. But they already probably have Bitcoin and they're probably already using it. And with very simple technology, that person now can develop uh, applications. It can develop things for use to the world and can participate in this new economy. And fiat won't do it. And again, not fiat won't do it. Fiat can't do it. If 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 all of the, the, the bankers got together and said, shit, you know what? We, all, we woke up today and for the first time ever, instead of just saying it, we actually care about developing nations. They're not just extracting their resources. We actually care about the people in them. We want to let them participate in this. We want to stop just being parasitic leech bastards and sucking from them. Let's make our system work for them. It can't do it. It's what Jack Maulers calls the boomer payment system. It was developed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's still using tech from those days. The connections are faster, but the back end is the same. Think of the boomer payment network this way. You go out, like I recently did, and you totally upgrade your in-house network. You've got cutting-edge in-house network. Your speed from your computer on your desk to your computer in your bedroom is breathtaking, right? It's beyond what anybody could conceive of even 10 years ago. But you have an old school dial-up 56K modem connection out to the internet. Everything you've done inside means absolutely nothing the minute you try to go out from your local network, your LAN, to your WAN. The bottleneck is there. That is the boomer payment network. That's the boomer payment network. The back end of it, the D-slam is a bottleneck of time and expense. And this solves that. And this is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And it goes, like, again, I think part of what has me excited is how quickly, like, this was an idea. And the idea has become a reality in weeks because we're in a, an open source development model. And, and you can't. I think if you're young, this is very hard to look at and truly appreciate because you've lived in a world where things generally get from idea to you know from conception to idea to reality pretty quick. This is fast even for that for that mindset. But if you grew up in the 70s and 80s to listen to a podcast that didn't exist in the 80s when you were a kid, hear an idea on a podcast that sounds revolutionary. And, and, and less than 10 days later, see it exist because somebody threw a hackathon. It tells you where we are in this process. We are extremely early. Just on the Bitcoin thing as a macro right now. I can't tell you 
What my biggest pushback I get from on Bitcoin is there's a few top contenders. You know, one is what happens when the grid goes down and the shit hits the fan? You're a prepper. What about when there's no electricity at all ever again? And my response to that usually is the person saying that you, I know what happens to you. You die. I'll probably make it. I'm pretty well prepared. I hope it doesn't happen, but I'll probably make it. And I won't be worried about Bitcoin or dollars at that point, either one. Okay. So you die. That's what happens. Two, that's not going to happen. Right. And that's one of my big objections. But my my bigger objection sometimes, I think, is, you know, I missed the opportunity. I missed the opportunity. And my response to that is always the same. No, you're missing the opportunity. That's how early we are. And I think you'll be pretty excited about this, even if you aren't already uh, toward the end of it. I think if you're excited, you'll be more excited about time we get to the end of today's show. Um, but this opens up also a totally new thing. So people right now are very focused on the concept of AI as a service provided by a third party because it's the easy answer, isn't it? I go get an account with ChatGPT or uh, I go get an account with MidJourney to generate art. And somebody else does all that back end work. I pay them a small fee and I get access to this incredible technology. But long term, this is a pretty weak model because we're we're all about in the space with Bitcoin of decentralization. And this is the exact opposite. This is a centralized model. This somebody controls when you get to access it. They control what it tells you. They build biases in for themselves rather than you building biases in for yourself. You know, you, everybody thinks they want non-bias. Well, if you're trying to, like, sleuth something out, you want to be as non-biased as possible. But you, there's completely legitimate reasons for bias. If I'm using AI to help me with my writing and I'm writing a book for a certain type of people, I want it to express the bias that those people want to buy. Be one example. If I'm writing the same book and it's not necessarily I want the whole book in that direction of bias. I want a character in the book that has bias, including a bias that makes him a total asshole that you want to die. And I want to write that into him. I don't want a machine telling me I can't do that because it might offend somebody. That's just one of a thousand examples of the problem of centralization here. So what people are doing, there are open source AI models now. And they're getting very, very sophisticated very fast. They're still behind the centralized models, but not by much. And the gap is closing. But we're back to even if you put a huge, badass computer in your house, there's limits to what you can do on one machine in your house. So what's the solution? Decentralization. The solution is you develop systems where if I have like the system that I use right now for just my my office work and shit is way overkill. About the only time it gets pushed at all in its capabilities is when I, when I do editing of video and audio. And it's only during the render that it actually uses even 20% of its capacity. It's a very good system. It's actually a computer that a gamer would buy. And I, it's just was the best value for processing power. Great big old GPU in it. Well, what if there was a federation, you know, and they might need a way to exchange value like Fediment using lightning Fediment, right? Um, that said, why don't we combine our surplus computing resources? And then we will make our open source AI model available to others for a small fee. And so Bill, who has nothing to do with what we're doing, right, has nothing to do with what we're doing. He just wants to use AI and he doesn't want to use the AI 
that has the biases he doesn't like or the controls he doesn't like. He's willing to pay for it. He just wants freedom. And maybe he wants AI that's, instead of generalist in knowledge, specialized in knowledge. Because our training model in our little federation might be something like, we're going to make the ultimate AI device to help herpetologists, just to show there could be any niche whatsoever. Like th th That might need some Latinaic knowledge and stuff like that, but it probably doesn't need a lot of knowledge about 18th century French literature, and it probably doesn't need a lot of information about atomic physics. And we can train that model because this is all done through training very, very quickly and very, very efficiently and very, very cheaply. The cost comes with the computing power to make it all work. Well, what if, you know, me and Hunter, who's here and Channel and TN Permaculture, and all of us could all have a really badass machine like I do, all running this, this software and this interface. And then we make that available to the herpetologists of the world or the botanists of the world or whatever niche we want to serve. Now, the problem is somebody hates us. They hate Mike, TM Permacore. They hate his ass. Maybe he left their wallet at his house. He was a logistical pain in the ass, inside joke one time, and they never got over it. He came and he drank all their freaking whiskey, and then he messed up their morning production schedule. They're like, that guy's a dick. I really don't think Mike's a dick. He's a great guy. That's why I'm jazzing with him, right? But they decide they hate Mike, and they find out he's part of this federation, and they want to screw us all now. And they start spawning gazillions of bots, well, within this federation, we can pass around payments based on our resources in our federation, and we simply bill the person who wants to destroy us. He has to pay every time he sends a request. It's a revenue model. We will not run out of power before he runs out of money. There'll be a, a pain point. There'll be a cost. And, you know, if we're not really serving our main customer base, but we're making money hand over fist for a couple of weeks until he gets tired of running out of money, Oh, well. So if you think about this, what this might be then is almost a new way of mining Bitcoin. Not direct mining. It's like indirect mining. I'm selling energy in return for Bitcoin, which is kind of what miners do. And I, I, I can't go much deeper than this because what's going to happen over the next six months with this is going to be insane. And there's no way I can tell you what it is. But I can tell you this is a scratch of the surface. And this is a solution to so many problems. Twitter, with all of their resources, could implement something like this in a week. Jack Mahler's said it was something different, but like as far as like being able to make payments on Twitter and having integrated tipping where you didn't have to do fancy shit and all, he's like, my guys could do it in two days. Two days, and it would be done. But Twitter can't do it. And somebody asked about Strike, and I'll, I'll try to save some time to give you some thoughts on that. But the reality is when you're a company for profit, there's a whole bunch of murky waters here, right? If you are a anonymous federation, which fediments are, simply providing access to a computer, exchanging energy for energy, it's a different world. It's not even that everybody might be okay with it. It's that there's not a hell of a lot you can do about it. And this, again, it's a scratch of the surface of where this is going. And I want to kind of shift into look, let's look at some pricing and where Bitcoin's going and why this is still the best investment, in my opinion, you can make. The best conversion of fiat to scarce asset on the planet is investing in Bitcoin right now. 
And I almost want to, I almost want to change the way that we talk about this. And that is people say, well, I bought Bitcoin. I bought Bitcoin. I bought Bitcoin. I don't think we should even say that anymore. I kind of look at it as I sold fiat. If I quote unquote buy a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin today, I sold a hundred dollars worth of fiat. It changes the mindset. And I think it's more accurate of what's happening. But <laughs> the key to Bitcoin's value, there's multiple keys, but the biggest key is the finite nature of the resource. The fact that there will only ever be 21 million, the fact that over 90% of all Bitcoin has already been mined, there's less than 10% of the remaining supply to be mined between now and almost 100, over 100 years. Every four years, that supply, that new supply gets cut in half. Yeah, so that's, that's a huge part of that. But what magnifies that is how much people, institutions, groups, etc., sell their fiat for and put it over here and go, that's an asset. I don't sell appreciating assets. I have a wealth mindset. When I buy appreciating assets, I keep them long-term minimum and optimally I will keep them forever because if they appreciate and accumulate sufficiently, I can literally borrow against them and, and I'll die before I ever have to cover a debt. And my kids will die before they have to ever cover, cover a debt. Rich people have been doing this for thousands of years with real estate. And real estate, I don't want to get into it because we covered it in the last episode. There's a lot more to maintaining and servicing real estate than there is Bitcoin. Once Bitcoin goes into once Bitcoin goes into cold storage, it costs you nothing to maintain. And it's not taxed because you've realized no gains. And they people always say, well, they'll 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 start taxing unrealized gains. That's something politicians will say, and they'll never do because they'll have to pay tax on their unrealized gains. And because it, it's not really doable. It's not really doable because, okay, do I get to deduct my unrealized losses? You see how that works? So th th this is the, the best place for money to go long term. Well, what I think is really interesting is that all of these things lock up Bitcoin. When you want to expand the Lightning Network, you have to have liquidity. OK. You have to have liquidity. And what that means is you have to take some Bitcoin and put it into the channel that you open with another node. And you don't have to know any of this to use lightning. But if you want to run a node, you do. And for you to use lightning in quantity, then there has to be enough liquidity on the network to allow the transactions. Once that liquidity goes into a lightning channel, it's going to be there a while. I mean, I guess somebody could open up a channel briefly to do a transaction and close it right away. And that does happen. But mostly you're putting this, this Bitcoin to work for you. It's the way to actually get a real world yield. It's a small yield, but you have zero with it sitting in cold storage and you have something greater than zero with it on a channel where it's still safe. You still control it. It's still all yours. You can shut down the channel and, and take it off anytime you want to, but it's making you money. So every time somebody actually becomes successful as a lightning node runner and begins to earn an income, that gets locked up. It gets locked up. If you start building the type of tools we're talking, that's an awful lot more Bitcoin out of the available supply locked up. And we'll talk about another circumstance that's doing that more and more. 
more toward the end. I want to talk now, though, about the BlackRock ETF. I think this is going to happen. I'm not sure if you said lay odds 75% right now. If you asked me two weeks ago to lay odds, I would have said 65. So we're heading that direction of greater confidence out of me with this. Part of why I went straight to like 50, 60% right as soon as it was announced is it's BlackRock. It's BlackRock. And generally, if BlackRock wants a thing, then BlackRock gets a thing. Yeah, that's just, that's just how it works. When BlackRock wants something from the SEC, BlackRock gets it. They're just that big. They're that much a behemoth. They are that much a tool of the elites that the elites are the ones that tell the bureaucrats what to do. That's one reason. But there's another reason. For a large part of my life, I was in sales. And when you are in sales, you get really good at recognizing buying questions. So you're sitting there, you're talking to a prospect. I don't care if you're sitting across a table from a husband and wife trying to sell life insurance or you're sitting across from a CTO selling a fully distributed system of network into their system for a couple million bucks. And I've done both. You will generally start out with questions that are objection questions. I'm really not sure I want to do this. So I'm going to throw some shit at you like, what happens when the grid goes down if I buy Bitcoin? Something like that. It's just general, nonsensical rebuttal questions. And assuming the person really is a good prospect for your product as a good salesperson, you handle those. And But at that point, you're like, I don't know if this deal goes anywhere or not. And you want to handle them as quickly as possible because if the deal's not going to go anywhere, believe it or not, you want to know as fast as possible when you want to leave. That's what makes a good salesperson. If I can fi figure out I'm never selling to this customer or this customer is going to take so much time, I could have made four other deals while I'm jacking around with them, then I'm going to go do the other deals. When the deal's going right, there is a point, and if you're trained, you know it. The questions go from objections to what we call buying questions. There's still objections, but they're a different type of objection. The customer goes into the point where they're literally saying, help me make this decision. I want to do this. I'm not clear, right? The feedback from the SEC to BlackRock has gone to what you would consider a buying question. We need more clarity. That's a buying question. Now, it's not really a sale, right? But it's still closing a deal. When you start getting that, that's like, we'll do this. Here's the things you have to do so that we can say yes. And that is a salesperson. That is a that is the position you want to be in. Let's define everything you need. Now, I'm going to go get that for you. And when I come back, we're going to do this right. I'm going to pre-qualify the close and I'm going to pre-qual and I'm going to I'm going to prioritize because when I go back to whoever I'm representing here, unless I'm a self, you know, one man show, I might have to get some clearance on this. I might not get everything you asked for. So I want to know what's the most important things, because that's how I'm going to go when I go back to my manager. I'm going to go through and we're going to get the thing that was most important to you. We're going to get that agreed upon. And I'm going to come back and go, I got everything that you asked for. Or I got everything you asked for except this. And here's what mitigates that. Can we do a deal now? And in general, when I do that, I'm going to get the deal. I'm going to get the deal done if I do that. That's what I see going on now. Now, there's so much crazy shit that happens in this world and so many head fakes 
That's why I'm only willing to go about 75% right now. But that's, you know, if I tell you there's a, if I'm a good weather man, and I tell you there's a 75% chance that it's going to rain today, and that rain will probably be accompanied by golf ball size hail, you're probably putting your car in your garage. You're probably thinking it's more likely than not that that's a good move. And that's where I think we are with the CTF. Now, it's interesting that the first place I went was weather because I think that's a good analogy here. There are people, I refer to them as God's special children, that do things like get mad with the weatherman, not about his prediction, but about the weather itself. I remember I was at a concert when I was a kid in Jacksonville, Florida, and we were in the middle of a bad heat wave even for Jacksonville. And it was like this, like, it was kind of like a, a Lollapalooza before those existed, right? It was like, a, it was like country and, and classic rock guys. I think like Rick Springfield was there, if I remember right, and Charlie Daniels band, as divergent as that is. That's what was going on. And, you know, they bring different people up on stage in between the acts and all, and they bring this dude up, and he was the local weatherman. And they're like, here's so-and-so from Channel 4 Weather. And everyone's like, boo! Like, it's his fault that it's hot. He just told you that it was hot. So when I talk about ETFs, I talk about the probability that they'll occur, why I think they're going to occur, and the good part of them happening. And then I get the purest Bitcoin maxis that are all angry, like Odell. We shouldn't have this. Okay, well, I don't care what you think. I'm telling you what I think is going to happen. I'm the weatherman here. There's a freaking storm over there, and it's coming. And by the way, yes, it's a storm. It's not all hunky-dory, but we're in the middle of a drought. This would be great because maybe the crops will grow instead of putting Brondo on them, right? Like, that's where I come from with this. And there's a lot of good out of this, and there's very little bad. And what I mean by very little bad is somebody else choosing to invest in Bitcoin through an ETF does not have any impact on your ability to self-custody. And self-custody right now is more popular than it's ever been, and that gives me a lot of pleasure, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Okay? It doesn't matter that you think it's stupid for Bill to buy a Bitcoin ETF. Maybe Bill thinks you're stupid because you don't understand that Bill has three-quarters of a million dollars sitting in a tax-deferred account right now that he cannot access Bitcoin with because it's a 401k and he still works for his company and he can't even go into a self-directed IRA with it. And he wants his money set free to buy something. The other side of this with the ETFs are we have ETFs for everything. You can buy an ETF that holds, you know, specific companies that make money on kidney dialysis. I've checked. It's a thing. You can buy an ETF that holds cadmium or cobalt. The most audible supply of any product on planet Earth is the Bitcoin blockchain and how much Bitcoin there is and when it's going to come out. There's nothing that could be easier to audit than a Bitcoin ETF, especially a spot ETF, and we'll get into that in a second. So just on a moral issue, if we can have an ETF for giraffe manure, and there probably isn't one, but there could be, then we should be able to have an ETF for Bitcoin. If we can have an ETF for silver, SLV, ticker symbol, then we should have a Bitcoin spot ETF as well. Just because, why would Bitcoin be singled out and not allowed into this game that everybody else is? And if we're going to say it's money, then it should be able to do anything money does. And we have dollar ETFs. We have euro ETFs. So why can't we have a Bitcoin ETF? 
And again, whether you think we should or not doesn't matter. I'm telling you it's going to happen. And I'm going to tell you it's going to unleash a massive wall of money. A massive wall of money. But I think there's a lot of confusion right now. Do we need one? Don't we already have Bitcoin ETFs? How is the spot Bitcoin different? So let's talk about what we have and what we don't have. The first is we have something like Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust. And people say, well, that's it's based on spot Bitcoin. It's not a futures one, right? So what's the deal? Why doesn't Grayscale do really well? Grayscale is what's called a, it called a closed end fund. Okay, a closed end fund. That is not what a spot ETF is. Let's start out. What is a closed end fund? A closed end fund works like this. Grayscale gets a bunch of money together, buys a certain quantity of Bitcoin. I don't even know how much they're holding. Let's say it was a like a freaking metric shit ton, 100,000 Bitcoins. And they sell shares in the fund itself. And each share will represent a portion of Bitcoin within the fund. It could be one to one. It could be a tenth to one. So for every one share, you hold one tenth of a Bitcoin, point one Bitcoin. Looks like a spot ETF. It isn't. It isn't because it's closed end. And what that means is when you want to buy into Grayscale, somebody holding Grayscale shares sells you their share. And if more people wanted to buy Grayscale shares than they had available inventory, that fund is closed. They can't go exchange with the market back and forth. If you want to sell your, your Grayscale shares in the fund itself, somebody who wants to buy it in that form has to buy it from you. That's a closed-end fund. It's a little simplified, but it should be enough for you to understand the difference. An ETF works different. Let's say I am the, 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 the ETF manager, the money manager, for the new Bitcoin ETF. And a thousand people want to buy in today, a Bitcoin apiece. Then in the name of the company and the, the underlying custodian, I go buy a thousand Bitcoin at market. And then you have your ETF share and it's very close to one to one. It won't be perfect, but one share of that ETF will always be very close, if not the exact same, as one Bitcoin, right? That's very simple to understand that way. And likewise, let's say a shitload of people holding the ETF decide, I want to sell my Bitcoin today. Well, you don't have to like sell your shares at a discount to get rid of them because only somebody that wants the fund will buy them. I, the manager, sell enough Bitcoin on the market and then you have sold your, your Bitcoin through us as a broker is the way to think about it. Now, you should if, if you understand that, you should understand that there's, there's no comparison between the two. Because there's a global market that trades 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, to sell that Bitcoin into or to buy that Bitcoin from. Versus taking this stuff and like it's like loading up a truck and each box in the truck is Bitcoin. And I keep the truck and we just change the name on the box. That's a closed end fund. And it, it actually can work for some things. It's, it's a terrible way to do Bitcoin. And I don't think Grayscale even wanted to. I think they did it as a test bed. And their whole goal has been to get it converted to a spot ETF and run it a totally different way. And that would be when it would really pay off for their early investors. And it really won't until they get the, the ability to do that, if they do. Now, it's going to be very hard 
once something like a BlackRock ETF gets approved for the SEC to say no to the next person. Because the next, because this is all public, right? It's a public filing. So even if these other companies didn't do it right, yeah, they could just take BlackRock's filing and as long as they can comply with what they filed, well, why can't we do it too? And if you're Joe Spooty, Joe Spooty's brokerage firm, that probably won't work. But when you're, you know, you're Edward Jones, it's very difficult then to justify, well, you can't do this, but they can. Because there's tons of ETFs that trade the same shit. There's more than one silver ETF. It's not like whoever goes first gets it. So there's a massive amount of money, but there's another side to it. Am I talking about lockup? So inventory is one thing. That's how much Bitcoin exists and how much is being produced every day. But that's what exists isn't available to be purchased. You can't, I, you know, the little bit of Bitcoin I have, you can't buy it. I'm not selling it. I see Builder of Castles here. I know he's a long-term hodler. You can't buy his Bitcoin. Tom's here, our web guy, Tom. He's not selling his Bitcoin. We're small players. It's not for sale, though. There's millions of us. And there's a lot of big-time ballers. They're not selling theirs either. That stuff's locked up long-term. So there's only a certain amount that's available to be traded. Now, when you take institutional money and you bring it into that very finite amount, the price action gets crazy. It gets crazy. I don't even want to speculate at what, not even this cycle, but the next one. The, not the having that's coming next year, the having that's five years out or six years out right now. There's a number in my head. I won't even tell you because you won't believe me. I think maybe you'll stop listening to me if I tell you what the number is. But I may do something like some kind of time capsule where I put it aside with a trusted custodian. And then when we're there, we'll see how close I was. Because I really do. I think, I think you'll stop listening to me if I tell you what I really think about that number. I really do. Um, but that, that is also contingent upon the ETFs getting approved. But, I mean, there's all of the... Yeah, something like that. You know who you are that just asked. Um, <laughs> all of the underlying scuttlebutt is this is going to happen. Like before it was it might happen, it could happen, I don't know. There wasn't this undertow. Now that could just be the BlackRock name. But uh, yeah, I, I think this is definitely leaning toward the 75% or better. And when I say that number, I'm talking before the next halving. My belief is that BlackRock wants this done before the halving and as quick as possible. I, I believe they already have significant position that is not fully disclosed, at least to us. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, I actually think they may have been behind a lot of the things that suppressed the price and pushed us further down in the last bull market, which, by the way, is officially over if you ain't noticed. Now, I've been getting a lot of anger from people because BlackRock are evil people. I know that. But Bitcoin is for enemies. I've been getting a lot of feedback. BlackRock's going to co-op Bitcoin. So you don't know how Bitcoin works. That's my response. So you don't understand how Bitcoin works. If I own half of all the Bitcoin, I can't co-opt it. The dude with a, with a piece-together Raspberry Pi node has as much say about the Bitcoin network as I do at that point. I can manipulate price. I can dump it. But all I'm doing is giving away my Bitcoin to stronger hands at that point. You can't co-op Bitcoin. It's not doable. There is something in the filing about, well, what do we do if a fork happens? Trust me, guys, that has to be there. 
BlackRock can't force a fork in Bitcoin, and it can't force anybody running a node to pick up the BlackRock fork. You're not going to get BlackRock coin out of this. And actually, if they did it, the amount of lawsuits they would be open to for market manipulation would, would, would scare even their accountants. I'll just leave it to you at that. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, now, I also do want to talk about the difference because we do have futures ETFs and we're talking about a spot ETF. And I think that's another place people get confused. A futures ETF trades in a market of options. I'm this month, I'm buying the right to buy Bitcoin next month for a set price. And if that number is higher, then, you know, like I, I say, I'm buying the right to buy Bitcoin on the 11th of August, exactly one month from today while I'm doing this, for $32,000. I'm paying a smaller fee for that option to buy at that price in the future. It's a buying option. And let's say that August 11th next month, Bitcoin is trading at $38,000. Pretty good spread. I'm not actually going to exercise the option and buy the Bitcoin, not in a spot ETF. I really can't. I'm going to sell the option to somebody that might exercise the option. And the way you make money in the futures market is a small movement in the commodity creates a magnified movement in the option. Especially if I want to cash out early and there's this big spike and I can, and that's, that's a futures ETF. It does that with your money. It is, and some of you are going, I don't really get it. Well, that's the problem. That's the problem. I don't care about GUI. I don't care about XRP. And you can ask me all you want. And you ask me every time I do one of these, I don't talk about shit coins anymore. I don't talk about shit coins. I don't care about Ripple. I don't care what it does. It can go piss off. Anyway. Um, but that's what a futures ETF is. And that's what these few ETFs we have, these futures ETFs do. And the average investor won't touch them because they don't understand it. They don't understand it. They're not going to understand it. They don't want to understand it. I could sit here right now and explain to you how using stock options, we can both do a put and a call, create what we call a collar in an options trade, and guarantee one of two out outcomes. At the end of the cycle, I break even or I make a little bit of money, but I'll never lose. I could explain to you how to do that. It works. I know how to do that. I have done that as a trader in stocks. It is pretty much foolproof. It's a small percentage gain when you do it that way, but it's a guaranteed gain. And most of you, your eyes would glaze over and you would never touch it. That's how people feel about options because it's, it's confusing. And people like to just, I want to be able to look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin went up, then my value went up. I want to look, you know, if I look at, if I have an ETF, or mutual fund that trades the S&P 500 and the S&P 500 went up that day, my 401k went good. That's how the average American thinks. When you open a spot ETF, the money will pour in. It will pour in. And it won't happen from a trust, not a closed end trust, which is what Grayscale is. And it won't happen with a future. It just won't. It won't. And you're right, Stymie, it's kind of like sports gambling. It's hedging. It's exactly what it is. Collar trading is hedging. For a small return, it's effectively becoming the house. There's a lot of strategies in there, and nobody's ever happy with that small return because it's very small. 
And it's not 100% risk-free. It's like 99% risk-free. So people aren't happy with it. So then they start getting involved in doing things like selling naked shorts and selling naked calls, which is where you're selling the option on something where you don't have the underlying asset. And then they lose their ass. They leverage with margin and they go to shit. Or they get really good at it and they get rich and they don't go on YouTube and talk about it. Because if you're the guy that's really good at that, you don't care what other people do. You're too busy cashing checks. You, you don't care. All right. Um, and I'm not going to get in options. because It's not my thing. And I talk about what I do. Like I played that game in the past and it's just not my thing anymore. So uh, Jeff says he'll listen. There's plenty of people that talk about them all the time. Go look it up. But that's where I'm at with this. I am to the point of I want to help as many as people as possible. So I want to keep it simple. And the best way I can keep it simple is stay humble and stack sats. I do these shows because that sounds so simple. Your mind probably repels it if you're not in the game yet. Like, it can't be that all I have to do is dollar cost average into Bitcoin and I'll do well for myself. That can't be. It can't be that simple. There has to be a trick. If you get my head around it, no. <laughs> do all the game theory research and, and whatever you want. Listen to shows like this. But in the end, it's going to come back to that. Take the Bitcoin, put it into cold storage, and don't touch it. And don't touch it unless you need it. It'll be there if you need it. But need is a big thing, and this is a big part of psychology. And it's where I want to go next. We're going to have a halving in less than a year. And we are going to go to, I believe it's 3.125 Bitcoin per block. So right now it's, uh, is that right? Anybody out there know if I got that right? I think it's 6.25 right now, Bitcoin per block. And then every four years, that number gets cut in half. So we have, we have this situation where you have the potential of all this institutional money coming in. And now you're going to have this halving that further reduces the available supply. And that's going to create a tremendous amount of price action. Looks like I got it right, 6.25 and 3.125. This is my second podcast today. I was just on for two hours with Nicole and John. So if I misspeak or something, I'm sorry. Like, my mind has limits, too. Um, so in a year, we're going to have that having. But there's something else going on right now that I don't know if it was intended and part of BlackRock's manipulation here, because BlackRock will benefit from the price go up if they get their ETF a lot. A lot. But all of this shit that recently happened, all of these, you know, angry letters and lawsuits by the SEC, you know, telling Coinbase, we think you're selling unregistered securities, the FTX debacle, all of it has resulted in the largest flight by holders to cold storage that we've ever seen. Right now, I'm going to play this for you real quick so I can wet the whistle since I've been on so much. Um, right now, there's less Bitcoin on exchanges than there has been since 2018. But there's a lot more total Bitcoin, and there's less quantity on the exchanges. Let's play this for you real quick. Give my voice a break, and I'll come back, and we'll talk about what it means for where we're headed here. 
Let's take a look at today's chart of the day. Bitcoin supply on crypto exchanges slipped to its lowest level since February of 2018, according to data from on-chain analytics firm Santiment. In a tweet, Santiment said, traders continue moving BTC to self-custody during uncertainty surrounding Binance and Coinbase. After the two major exchanges were served with lawsuits from the SEC, you'll see a large drop in Bitcoin supply on exchanges, with a 6.4% supply leaving in the past week. Supply has been steadily declining since 2020 as traders and investors choose self-custody amid regulatory and exchange risks. That's it for today's chart of the day. I'm Jen Sinassi. We'll see you tomorrow to unpack more of the data behind top news stories. The chart of the All right, guys. So I uh, want to remind you, because there are some questions coming in and I'm getting them. The, the way you see Builder of Castles, this is kind of perfect. You see he's got question in all caps and then the question. Do that for me. I have like four questions starred for Q&A at the end, and I'll, I'll try to get to them. Uh, because it is hard to do all this multitasking as a single sole producer of a show. And it, I only got one good eye to begin with. All right, so here's the deal with self-custody. It is the hardest thing to do to get a new Bitcoiner unless you're sitting next to them, holding their hand, telling them it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, to take self-custody. It's actually difficult just to get them to do something like download download Coinami or Exodus or whatever and then put your Bitcoin on your own wallet instead of keeping it on the exchange. It's very difficult to do. They're afraid. And it's it's patently stupid if that's you, by the way. If you're, if you're you know, part of the 16% left still on the exchanges, it's patently stupid of you. To be afraid to do that. If you've ever made a Bitcoin transaction and you've sent Bitcoin from your exchange account to another party, then you've already done the the technical part. You sent it from one place to an address. But here's the magic. Once the person does it, it immediately, once they see it for themselves, it becomes the standard. And when you can get them to take one more step, go out, take some of that fiat, buy yourself a hardware wallet, and take complete and total custody where it's not like if somebody gets your computer or your phone, they can't get your Bitcoin. And once they do it, and once they understand this, and they realize, oh, this is how it works. This is mine now. I control this. This information is my information. I have total dominance and total control. It becomes the standard in their life. You'll find that once you do this, you know, if you're DCAing in small amounts and you have your exchange account, like you're using Swan or something, and you're buying 25 bucks a week, you might not immediately take self-custody at 25 bucks. You wait like six weeks, you have like 150 bucks in there. You pick a Sunday when the blockchain action is a little bit low and the fees are down, and you sweep it off. If you're using Swan, you might even set up where It'll hit a certain number, and Swan just immediately sends it to a chain of different uh, UTXOs that you set up, and it's all automated. It's slick as shit. That's why I love Swan, except like me, if you're in Texas, you can't use it right now because of the Prime Trust thing. Um, it's, it's fantastic, and it becomes the standard. There's something else that happens, though. I want you to think about this. You're thinking about buying a thing. You look at your checking account. You're on an app on your phone. You're looking at a checking account in your bank. And there's enough money in your checking account to pay your bills for the month. You got some extra money. 
you really want the thing? Yeah, whip out the debit card, right? Boom, bang, I bought the thing. Same scenario. You look in there, and it really isn't enough money to buy the thing. You're going to run out of money before the next paycheck if you buy the thing, okay? And so you look at all your accounts, and they're a big old fat $11,321.27 in your savings account. And the thing's a couple hundred bucks. All you got to do is go transfer and whip out the debit card. Do you think just a little bit more before you do that? Do you go, wait a minute, this is my savings. And it's right there in one app, and it's all in the bank. You don't have custody of any of it. Now, let's go a different way. You're sitting, and you're a little bit scared because Bitcoin went down. So you think, I have to sell my Bitcoin because you're stupid, and you haven't matured as a Bitcoiner yet, and you haven't accepted that it goes up and down. Or it goes really, really high up for a day, and you think you're smarter than the market, so you're going to sell it that day, and then it's just going to keep going up, and you'll wish you didn't do it. But it's right there. It's on your exchange account. All you have to do is click sell, and it's gone. Buy, and you buy it back. It's sell, and buy, and sell, and buy. Now you think you're a trader, and then you get wrecked. If you have to plug this in, this hardware wallet in, you have to transfer the money onto the exchange and then make the trade. Are you going to think a little bit harder? I hope you will. A thinking human would think harder. What does that do? It reduces supply. The fact that... These market-timed events now have to have a lag between the person deciding, I want to cash out, and they have to think about it. Some of this money that left the exchanges is never coming back. That's immediately spendable. It's immediately spendable. Yeah, Carl, uh, Carl says that uh, Swan has, hasn't been on Prime Trust for weeks now, but the new custodian has not been approved by the state of Texas, so we're still in limbo here in Texas. That's That's what I mean by that. So... The the scuttlebutt from someone I know at Swan is it should be okay by August, but we'll see. If not August, the end of the year. So that's like that's like when I was in the cable industry. How long is the job going to take? Two weeks. Three weeks later, how long is it going to take? Two weeks. It was always two weeks. So I I don't know. We'll have to wait and see what that does. Government got in the way again. What a surprise! But we're seeing the makings of the biggest supply shock that Bitcoin's ever seen. You add these things together. You add institutional money, larger investor awareness, high levels of self-custody. And if you look at the graph, it's not slowing down now, is it? Right? Like that that amount of self-custody. Let me pull that. Just I won't play the video again. I'm just going to pull up the window. And if you see the you see the purple shading there, and then that purple is the self-cut. That's how much of Bitcoin is left on the exchange. This, is, this, this green line is something else. The purple is, this is what happened. This is how much Bitcoin ended up on exchanges right back here. This is about 2019, 2020. And it's a straight line down. Because every time some shit goes sideways, people wake up to what they should have always woken up to. The entire point of Bitcoin is being your own bank. And that the main thing about being your own being your own bank is not a payments system. It's custody. It's custody. Why do you put your money in the bank? 
The fact that you can make a payment from the bank without going to get your money is secondary to the original reason put people put their money in bank. I keep my money at my house. So he breaks in my house, steals my money. I put my money in the bank. They got to get in the bank to get my money. Plus, I got insurance. So it's security. It's safety. Well, your money is much more secure in self-custody Bitcoin with 12 words in your head and hopefully ensconced somewhere permanently than it is in the bank. It's a lot more secure because no one can ever shut you off. Right. Right. Like no one can just like no one can decide, Okay, you know what? I don't think Carl deserves his Bitcoin anymore. By the way, they can do that with Ethereum and they have. The Ethereum Foundation can shut off your Ethereum which means all of the shit coins, the mother asshole of shit coins Ethereum have spawned, can also be shut off. The whole tornado cash thing, they could identify account numbers. Ethereum has account numbers. Not where your money should be. Bitcoin, stay humble, stack sats. This is all coming. This is all coming. And you also now, let's go back. Now you're looking at a massive use case for the most rapidly emerging technology on the planet, artificial intelligence, thrown up on top of that. Now you're looking at banking the unbanked for technological use, not for buying mealy porridge, which is what it's been up till now. And I have to ask you a question. What happens if any major country starts buying Bitcoin? Prints their fiat, buys Bitcoin. Now I have to ask you another question. Given everything that we're talking about here, given the fact that if you're printing money, it's not yours anyway, right? Uh, given, given the fact that you're taking a risk with somebody else's money, the taxpayer's money, why wouldn't at least one major country start stacking sats insignificantly so? Why wouldn't they? If it doesn't work, you're not going to get fired. You're a bureaucrat. It doesn't matter. Especially if you get a fractional reserve system and the outside independent body, the central bank was doing it in the name of the country. Hey, you ain't got to go to jail or anything. You're rich as shit. You don't care. You're either a hero or nothing happens. Womp womp. So, do you think it's possible that one or more nations, either directly or indirectly, are already doing this? They're already doing this or they're funding mining operations that you think are independent mining operations, but they're actually being held in some form in custody of a nation. This is an if this isn't, hey, 75 percent likelihood ETF Blackhawk prediction. This is an if I just look at how many countries there are in the world. And we know at least one country is holding Bitcoin on the public treasury. That's El Salvador. That maybe somebody else is already doing this. And let me ask you a question. This is a serious question. Once the jig is up, once the cat gets out of that bag, once a country find, like the United States finds out, holy shit, when China banned Bitcoin for the 900th time, what they really did is start amassing Bitcoin from the United States by funding mining operations, because there's a ton of Chinese money funding American mining operations. I'm not saying the Bitcoin's going to China. I'm just saying there's a shit ton of Chinese money 
funding the development of mining operations in the United States. And I believe that even if the rumor is plausible that any central bank in the world is buying Bitcoin, every major central bank in the world begins buying Bitcoin. And then my number for the next cycle is stupid low. Because math. I think that if you are not doing this right now, you don't understand what's going on at all. You don't understand what's going on at all. I can't get these numbers exactly right. I put this on Nostr last week, but I talked about the value of being a whole coiner and some of it I can remember. And basically it works out like this. If we had a complete fantasy scenario about resetting the opportunity of Bitcoin, if we said instead of mining it over time, there's 21 million right now and anybody can buy a piece of one or a whole one. You can't buy two. No Michael Saylors, no Bitcoin trust grayscale, none of that shit. No early adopters, no Bitcoin billionaires. Everybody can buy one Bitcoin maximum. Now, once you buy it, you can trade it amongst yourselves. But coming out of the pot and everybody bought a whole one. There could be 21 million whole coiners in the world. There's 330 million people in the United States. And that complete fantasy scenario, it's somewhere like 6% of people in the United States could be a whole corner if the rest of the world wasn't involved. If you do all of the Americas, North and South America, it was somewhere like 2%. And if you did the global population, 0.23, I think is what it came out to when I did the math, 0.2 something percent of the global population in the ultimate fantasy scenario where everybody gets one can be a whole coiner. Now, take there's a couple million coins that were mined by Satoshi that are locked up infinitely and never moved since the day they were put there. There are at least a million Bitcoins that are stranded, lost, keys missed, missing, people threw away laptops that mined early on. So that's gone. There are mega hodlers like Michael Saylor and, and uh, MicroStrategy holding, you know, thousands of them. A whole coiner in time by math with not not hyper Bitcoinization, not just just significant adoption in the world. A whole coiner will end up being one of the top one percent of wealth in the world. Very doable right now. Very doable. Now, I want to say, <laughs> I know there's people that think I'm overhyping this at all, but I'll ask you this. What incentive do I have? I'm sitting here on a Tuesday doing my second podcast of the day when all I had to do was take the material I did with John and Nicole, and she has no problem with me reusing it, and both of us put it on our feeds, and I could be sitting at my pool right now drinking a beer. My bills are covered. My whole coins are stacked. I don't need anything from this. If every single person listening to me and their mother, their dog, and their brother go buy Bitcoin tomorrow, it won't move the price. It's not like I'm hyping it. I don't do shitcoin reviews like BitBoy for a fee. I don't speak at cryptocurrency uh, conventions. Bitcoin is my absolute least favorite topic in my audience of a podcast I've done for 15 years. My audio episodes that I put out 
get over 200,000 downloads for most episodes. One on Bitcoin is lucky to get 30, 40,000 downloads over a couple weeks. AI is my second least favorite topic among my audience. And here I sit on a Tuesday when I don't have to be working at all, talking about these two things at the same time, knowing it's going to turn off the vast majority of my audience. So why would I do that? Because I've worked long enough and I've worked hard enough that I can do whatever I want and no one can stop me and I can still pay my bills. So my goal, my goal in life has become help as many people as I can. And I don't have a better place for you to run to in a time of uncertainty like right now than Bitcoin. And that's why I did it as a breakout. So that the people that don't want it don't have to listen, but you can, you will never be able to look back and say, damn, Jack, I wasn't listening. I'm sorry, but you should have kept telling me. No. Let's see what we can get. Um, there's one of our questions. Any word from Strike about direct deposit? Well, I don't have any dialogue with Strike. I have really tried to get a relationship with Maulers or one of his people. I've loved to get Maulers on for an interview. No one from Strike will talk to me. So I don't have any information that you probably couldn't find yourself. I will tell you that right now I think that one of Jack Mahler's predictions is coming to fruition. I think he's being squeezed by Jamie Dimon. And I think Jamie Dimon thought, I'm going to fight Strike on K Street in D.C. with lobbying and regulation. And, all. and the SEC is signaling, no, you're not. No, you're not. We, we, we see that we're going we're gonna to do this because somebody more important than you wants us to. You know? Um, so I think what they're doing is, well, within, like, it's Operation Choke Point 2.0, right? Like, you, you used to be able to do a direct deposit, or not a direct deposit, a debit card deposit into Strike at no cost, and then it was a very small fee, and now you can't do a debit card deposit. I don't think that Jack Mahler said, you know what, screw that. Screw those people that are our customers. We don't like them anymore. I think it became cost prohibitive for him to allow that. And so I think it's things like that that are squeezing strike, and it's going to be up to strike to innovate around it. By becoming a company that's in the public space, even if they're not publicly traded, and in this business of money handling, they are subject to so many regulations and so much requirement for participation within the banking sector. And so I don't know how they're going to handle it. I think it's a great company. I love Jack. I would love to have a discussion with him. And I would love to have somebody at Strike where when there's problems, I can say, hey, could you talk to this person? Because I know it's frustrating. I set up my Strike account, linked my bank account, did all that shit. It was simple. It was minutes. And it works beautifully for me. My wife, because I ran out of, like, you can get referrals from Strike for referring people. Well, you can only do, like, $400 in referrals a year, and they shut you off until the next tax year. And they do that. I'm pretty sure I know why they do that. They do that so they don't have to send a 1099 out because you made under 600 bucks. So just by making that number lower, they can just never do any paperwork. It saves administrative costs. It saves hassle, whatever. So I figure, well, my wife can set up a Strike account. And then when my referrals run out for the year, I'll just change the link over to hers. And it would not verify her banking information, her ID. And it was like 
It was like being put on a terror watch list. Like you couldn't talk to anybody and that sucks. And I'll tell you what, as much as I love fold, same shit differences. I was able to get a contact inside fold. And when somebody in my audience has that problem, you know, assuming they're not, you know, a, a terrorist trying to create fraud or something, you know, I can get in touch with Jeremy over there and we can generally get that problem ironed out. But there are one thing you have to understand with all these Bitcoin companies, there are gatekeepers between them and the legacy system. And they have limits to what they can do. And that's not just strike. That's anybody. Uh, next up, Hunter says, do you think that the dot gov will 1099 or whatever running nodes? I think it's very difficult to do because running a node doesn't mean that you're making money. Now, lightning nodes, since they charge a fee, they could say you, you but you wouldn't be able to 1099 anybody. They could come up with some way to try to enforce you reporting your income on fees, which technically, you know, if you're following the letter of the law, you should be anyway. This is like it's trying to net glass minnows at the beach with a dip net for your bass with the great big holes. Like you could put the net in the water and all the minnows just go straight through the holes like you're not getting it. It's like. It's like it's the, the COVID's mask, right? It's like trying to stop water from a hose with a chain link fence. A little bit gets knocked down and it all goes through. Like they have to pick and choose their battles. There's another question on 1099, so I'll, I'll save my thoughts on that for a bit. But I don't know that you can, you can, you can enforce that. You can make a rule, but this is enforceable. And, and I don't know that it is. They, there's been talk of trying to say, like, if you're running a lightning node, or a proof of stake, you know, validator, that there should be some sort of, you know, what have you. But if you run a lightning node, then you know, you know the transaction parties of the ones that you did. Like if if I send money to Hunter to his lightning node, I know that it's me and him. But but if it if it is not a direct channel between us, I don't know where else it went. And if there's another um, note in between us, they don't know who we are. So how would they, you see, it doesn't work. And it's part of why the government hates it. But here's, here's the reality that government usually throughout history learns a lesson of. If we make compliance with our taxation easy and reasonable, most people will do it. If we make it difficult or impossible, or onerous, or all three, then we create a black market and we always lose in the end. Now, government is slow to learn, but with emerging technologies, they're actually quicker to learn because they have to, because they get innovated straight around. Remember what we're doing here. We are eliminating an entire level of government that people don't see as government. In fact, it is the most powerful layer of government that exists. You know, I think it was Rockefeller or Rothschild that said, if you give me control of a nation's money, I don't care who governs it. I think that was Rothschild. If I control the banking system of a nation, you can have any politician you want. I control it. You're eliminating that layer of government with this. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be resistance. But in the end, you know, if I'm a government person, if I'm a politician and I crave power, this actually takes power from the banks that have power over me. So I think there's a point where there starts to be some other things. So 
Uh, this is kind of the same question here. What do you think about IRS form W-9 requirements for exchanges? Well, I hate all things from government. But here's what I'm saying. If you're doing what I'm telling you to do, you don't give a shit about a W-9. W-9s would be Jack Spirico opens up a Bitcoin account with ABC Exchange. Jack Spirico buys $20,000 worth of Bitcoin and leaves it on the exchange. He doesn't hodl. Bitcoin go that Bitcoin becomes worth $25,000 and Jack Spirico sells the Bitcoin at $25,000 and he's a good trader. So the Bitcoin goes back down to like $18,000. I buy it all back and it goes up again and I sell it and I keep doing that and I'm making money by trading. If you buy Bitcoin, take it off the exchange. You don't owe any taxes. You didn't sell it. You didn't profit. You bought it. And it doesn't matter how much it's ever worth. It's yours. Now, people would say, well, it's not no KYC or anything. That ship is sailed. The only way you're going to get no KYC Bitcoin is to sell something for or privately buy Bitcoin from someone whose Bitcoin wasn't KYC. Most of it is a, is a pipe dream. It's fairy dust. I don't care that you know I have something if you can't take it from me. That's the security side. Bitcoin is not the best privacy instrument by a long shot. But it is the best security instrument. It is what you would look at as a bloodless revolutionary tool. I, it's, I'm indestructible. Shoot all the missiles at me you want. When, and when I say that, like me as a person, I'm not, but my wealth is. You, you can't have it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Try to guess the right atom in the known universe. That's, a, that's about what it's like to try to get my Bitcoin. Um, Builder of Castle says, what kind of business what to sell that will pry Bitcoin out of cold diamond hands? Nothing will pry Bitcoin out of cold diamond hands. Nothing. The only reason people buy MSB from me with Bitcoin is they want to learn how to use it. And so that's one way is you can sell to people that are learning how to use it. And most people that buy Bitcoin from or buy my membership product from me with Bitcoin. Don't take Bitcoin they've been holding since 2014 and do it. They, they go buy a little bit of Bitcoin and then they send it to me. That's what they do. How do you buy Bitcoin with your business? You, you mine fiat. And you sell it for Bitcoin. Doesn't matter what your business does. Doesn't matter what form of payment you make. It's the same reason somebody will be like, Jack, I know you don't like shitcoins anymore. But unfortunately, I bought a bunch of Algorand when you thought it was going somewhere. And I did. I'm wrong. I was sorry. I, I upset it. Um, like I said, lightning came and destroyed every use case. Every use case that there was for all these shitcoins. Will you take Algorand? Sure. Oh, okay, great. Now, if you think I'm going to take that Algorand and put it in my wallet and custody it, you're crazy. I'm going to give you an address to an exchange that I have an account with. You're going to send me Algorand. I'm going to flip it into Bitcoin, and I'm going to take it into self-custody. There's no difference in doing it with fiat. You know, if you run a business or a side hustle or whatever, set a budget. So I'm going to buy a minimum of X and a minimum of X percent. So that would mean, like, even if I don't do really great this week, I'm going to buy at least 100 bucks. But if I have a really great week, I'm going to buy 20% of my business income or side hustle income or surplus capital. I'm just going to buy Bitcoin with it. It doesn't matter where you get it. It doesn't matter where you get it. Andy says, uh, question, thoughts on cold card. Uh, somebody answered you and said Guy Swan uses it and recommends it. That's a good enough endorsement for me. It's a cold storage wallet. If you want to use cold card, use cold card. I personally use a Trezor Model T. It's, it's, of course, it's the one I would most recommend because it's the one I chose for myself. 
I have no negative opinion about just about any other hardware wallet except the one that I'm being asked about next. So I think cold card is a great cold wallet. And I don't think Guy Swan, who is the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know, because he basically made a career out of reading about Bitcoin. I don't think he would choose a product that's a bad product. I have tremendous respect for Guy, but I've never actually bought one, used one, or deeply looked into it because I'm satisfied with my solution. The same is not true. Josh asked the question, can we trust Ledger or should we switch to other cold storage devices? I don't trust Ledger at all at this point. I don't think they're nefarious. I don't think they're competent. For those that don't know, Ledger tried to introduce a cloud backup solution for your seed phrase and then sort of kind of like let out of the bag that we actually would be able to tell you the seed phrase on a device. No. So if you want to know all the tools I recommend for Bitcoin, you go to the bitcoinbreakout.com forward slash tools. And when you look at wallets, you'll see that there's wallets other than the Trezor Model T that I personally use and state that I do. Cold card's not there. I probably should add it because it's a great solution from my understanding. But Ledger's not there anymore. If you went there six months ago, Ledger was there. When that came out, I removed my implied endorsement because it's not a true endorsement. They don't pay me for it. But I, I, I could no longer recommend a ledger after hearing that. Never, never, ever again. Now, as far as I know, no one's ever lost Bitcoin due to that. But, you know, a good hardware wallet's a couple hundred bucks. So I've always said this, too. Like, if, if you're like, well, I don't know what hardware wallet to get. My first question is, how much Bitcoin you got? When you tell me like 500 bucks, I'm like, you don't need one yet. You don't need one yet. Look at it as an insurance policy and a percentage against the total. You get a few thousand bucks, you know, and between now and then, you got plenty of time to figure out what you want to do for Bitcoin as far as a wallet. Uh, Thrill of the Chase says, question, have you swapped ETH for Bitcoin? Any tips on the best place, what to look for? There seem to be a lot of sites. Okay. I have several different exchange accounts, and I really don't care which account that I would use to do that with. It's a simple transaction. It's deposit the Ethereum and sell the Ethereum for Bitcoin and withdraw the Bitcoin immediately uh, to self-custody. You are though you are going to do this, though. You're going to create a taxable event. So if you want to know if Jack has any Ethereum, Jack does have a significant holding of Ethereum. I have that because when I was brand new to this and all these altcoins started coming out, I would buy some of stuff. And when Coinbase first introduced Ethereum, it was really cheap. And I had a lot of Bitcoin because, you know, a referral back then was paying me like 0.1 Bitcoin for a referral. That's how long ago this is. So I bought some Ethereum, exactly how much I'm not going to say. But it was a lot. And so that was bought on an exchange. It would have to be sold on an exchange. I am going to pay tax on that when I transfer it or sell it. So I have converted a little over half of that initial buy. And I've never bought it again, by the way, um, either in the Bitcoin or I've used it for certain things in the fiat world, paying down some bills and stuff like that. I think there is one more giant surge, and I will probably wait for it to dump the rest. And I'm going to tell you this. I could lose. I could lose it. And what I mean by lose is Bitcoin may so outpace Ethereum in this that at that point, I would have been better off doing it now. It's a gamble. But I know that right now, if I sell it, 
I have to take about 20% of it to pay taxes on it because as cheap as I bought it, it's pretty much 100% long-term capital gains. So it's, it's a situation I would never put myself into now, but I put myself into it back then, and I have not gotten to the point where it makes sense for me to completely opt out of it. Uh, TM Permacle says, what app is currently best to onboard new people to pay me in Bitcoin? Well, <laughs> to pay you in Bitcoin. If they get everything approved, probably the easiest thing for people to use is Strike. But you can't do debit card deposits anymore. I hate Coinbase, but they're like the easy button. A person that can use PayPal can use Coinbase. Um, if you can, the problem is them getting the Bitcoin. Like the easiest thing to onboard somebody to Bitcoin is to download a Lightning wallet and send them a dollar and let them see how it works and then teach them to accept Bitcoin and then they can pay you in it. So the, the complication now is not the app itself, right? The, the complication is getting the fiat into Bitcoin for the new person who does not want to give their, you know, all their personal information, their, their driver's license, social security, and do the KYC thing because they don't trust the exchange. And so many purists out there will say that same thing. Like, you have a bank account? Yeah, then shut up. Then shut up because you already did that to get a bank account. Now, the people that are purists and don't have a bank account, I'm not living that way. But I respect you. I respect you. But the person with four credit cards, two bank accounts, a car note, living on a fiat standard, that's had the KYC and all that shit. When they go get their next car lease, they're going to have to do it all again and get a credit check. And then you're like, oh, KYC, big one. Shut up. I, I just I can't. I can't bother with it. I can't bother with it because you're not making any rational sense. So that's the key, Mike. Like a lot of this stuff works really good. The easiest thing to use for speed and efficiency right now is probably Wallet of Satoshi, right? It's great, but if the person doesn't have any Bitcoin, it's not really helpful. So you have to kind of get somebody onboarded to uh, to gaining Bitcoin. But what's the easy app? PayPal, Cash App, whatever. Let them pay you in dollars and buy Bitcoin with it. Really simple, like mine fiat, right? I picked up that term mine fiat on Noster. A bunch of plebs on there that, like, when they talk about their job, they're like, oh, right, in the coffee picture in the morning, ready to head off to the fiat mines, or at the end of the day, they're having a beer and uh, finally out of the fiat mines for the day. And that's what they're looking at. They're mining fiat with their labor, and they're selling the fiat for Bitcoin. Just flip that around as a business person. If you can get them paying with mine, but that's your that's your holdup. Uh, Jason says, how to properly cash your seed phrases, ideas and stuff. I've done my work, but maybe you have new ideas. I think well, the coolest thing you should do is consider building yourself a stamped um, backup phrase on washers in a bolt. And if you go to the survival, I'm sorry, the BitcoinBreakout.com and the Bitcoin tools page, and you scroll down almost to the bottom where it says like fun stuff or something like that, you'll see a video of how to do that. Or get yourself, you know, a titanium backup or something. It should be in metal. What I like about making your own out of washers and bolts and a stamp kit is it's super cheap and it's fun. And it's really easy to basically split it in half and put it in two different locations and make multiple copies and do that. And then it's never going to wear out or fade or something like that. And uh, there's a little 3D printed jig to make it all pretty. You don't need that. 
And you can buy them for a couple bucks from people that sell them on Etsy and eBay and shit like that anyway. Let's see, are there any more questions before we wrap up today? Okay, this is a question. It's not a question, but it's a FUD. Rick says, so BlackRock with $9 trillion couldn't buy the majority of miners and majority stakeholder per WEF stakeholder own. Think state of blockchain is the future of everything on blockchain is 100% trackable. Okay, so first of all, for BlackRock to use $9 trillion to buy all the Bitcoin mines, they'd have to sell all the institutional shares that they're holding and end up with nothing except the Bitcoin miners, if you think you're going to do that with $9 trillion. It, BlackRock's ETF has absolutely nothing to do with that play, Rick. If you want to buy Bitcoin mining operations, go buy Bitcoin mining operations. You don't need the SEC. BlackRock could go buy Bitcoin mining operations tomorrow morning. Larry Fink could put the Larry Fink logo of a giant turd with his face on it right over top of um, you know one of the major mining firms tomorrow. They don't need an ETF to do that. That's not the play. This is the problem. You think miners control the network. Node operators control the network. Node operators control the network. What are they going to do? Shut down the miners? Well, then other people are going to mine. You're going to buy out all? This is a ridiculous, ridiculous assertion. I'm I'm sorry. It's one of those ones I really can't take seriously. Uh, Again, because you're linking two things. Like, let's say, could BlackRock try to get enough funding to go buy up as much of the mining footprint as he can. Sure. You know, one of the things I have to do is figure out how to do it inside one of the number one mining nations outside the United States right now would be Kazakhstan. You'd have to get the people that own these to, to sell it. It has to have the capital because again, you can't just take the capital that's holding an institutional share in target and spend it on a Bitcoin mine. Right. It's it's just one of those things that, like, you're fishing for a reason not to. You are still in the objection phase of question answering, and I've moved past that. I'm, I'm in the, the buying phase of question answering with people. And I don't mean to be mean or anything. I'm just telling you, like, these things that you're coming up with, you're making pie-in-the-sky ideas about this. BlackRock wants money, lots and lots of money. And the easiest way for BlackRock to make money with this, the easiest way is with an ETF. If they're going to go in the mining business, then once you own mining equipment, the most profitable thing you can do with it is mine. Is mine. But if you have a whole shitload of ASICs, you don't have any more say than the dude that doesn't have any running a node on 51% picking up the code on a fork and deciding which way to go. It buys you nothing. No one cares. Bitcoin doesn't care. It's how the system was designed. I'm sorry. Uh, Let's go ahead and wrap up. I want to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do here and you want to support us, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And uh, today's item of the day for review has nothing to do with Bitcoin at all, other than a lot of Bitcoiners like really good meat. South Chicago Packaging has a giant tub you can buy of Wagyu beef tallow. Wagyu beef is like some of the most luscious, fatty beef on the planet. This is tallow from rendered Wagyu fat. This is an incredibly high smoke point. If you love your steak with a hard sear, I have not found anything. I have not found anything that gives a sear on a steak like Wagyu tallow. You get a pretty good one with like ghee. 
because the butter actually starts to, to burn a little bit and all this without the burn. This is just straight up gorgeous sear. And we have Prime Day right now on Amazon. This stuff's on sale for 20% off. It's a good deal no matter what. So if you want to support us, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And no matter what you buy, you will help us. But you also find my daily reviews there and everything that I recommend. With that, I'll wrap up. Tomorrow, you know, I I, uh, I brought around Sean Mills' Kickstarter. And tomorrow, Sean Mills will be on the show. We won't really be talking about his Kickstarter, though, or even really solar. It's been a long time since we've done a, a show dedicated to generators and making it simple to understand what to buy for backup power, everything from little tiny portables to standby generators, you know, how to invest your money, how to think about that. And even though today was a Bitcoin breakout episode, this show has been built for 15 years on preparedness. And I have to tell you, the number one preparedness item that has bailed my ass out over the last 20 years has been owning a couple generators over and over and over again. Um, when I lived in Arkansas, if the power would go out, we had a double wide trailer up there. It, if it happened in the summer, it was unbearable. A, a mobile home in the sun without an AC unit is a oven. And being able to have a couple portable AC units and plug it and just shut some doors and wall off part of the house made it incredibly pleasant. Uh, we also had a huge ice storm up there one time, and we went seven days without power. Neighbors came by about the fourth day to see if we were doing okay. It was Christmas time. My son was in town. We had the lights on the Christmas tree blinking because we had a generator. So if you want to know how to set your backup power up from the standpoint of having a good generator, how about having a professional engineer talk to you about it? Because that's who Sean is, and he'll be on with us tomorrow. Thursday, I haven't decided what we're doing yet. Friday will be an expert panel show, and then new week comes, and we'll do it all again. Take care, guys. I'll catch you tomorrow with another one. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.